I'm Dr. Terry Fisher, a physician and voice technology futurist. Voice First Technology is rapidly becoming the operating system of our lives, and it will completely revolutionize the way we experience healthcare. Let's talk voice. Hey there, Dr. Terry Fisher here with your podcast for this week. And you may know that last week I hosted a webinar and it was all about voice technology and the current COVID-19 pandemic. We had a tremendous list of speakers that were part of that. And now, just so you know, all of those videos are actually on the website at voicefirsthealth.com slash webinars. So you can check that out. The podcast that I want to share with you today is actually a recording of the final speaker. And this is Brian Romley. And if you don't know Brian, Brian is the man that actually came up with the term voice first. He has often been referred to as the Oracle of Voice. He has been referred to as the Thomas, as the modern day Thomas Edison. You'll hear a similar introduction when I introduce him here on the uh, on the podcast and in the recording from the webinar. Uh, but when we started talking, there were so many interesting ideas that came out of this. And as we got to the end of the uh, of the webinar, the people that were attending were requesting that I turn this into a podcast. And I was only too delighted to be able to do that. Brian was uh, very happy for me to share this as a podcast as well. So I think you're in for a real treat. Brian talks about some of his ideas, some of his visions for what our world is going to look like using voice technology after this coronavirus pandemic. So uh, like I said, I think you're in for a real treat. Um, So I'm going to share this uh, webinar with you right now. And I'll be back uh, afterwards uh, with some uh, concluding comments. So uh, enjoy this uh, discussion, this fireside chat with Brian Romley. As some of you will know, I'm a big fan of Brian's. Brian and I have become uh, friends uh, through meeting each other at a couple of conferences. Brian Romley is, um, you may have heard some of the, uh, the names that he's been given, the Oracle of Voice, the modern day Thomas Edison. He's always working on something in his garage that is absolutely fascinating. And one of the things that um, really, really impresses me about Brian is his ability to bring knowledge from all different areas. For example, uh, computer science, anthropology, history, medicine. Um, It goes on and on and on. And Brian is able to take this all and synthesize this. And his views, in my mind, are absolutely uh, incredible. I don't know how else to describe it. And when Brian speaks, I listen. And so it's with absolute uh, pleasure and excitement that I get to have Brian share some of his thoughts with all of you on this uh, on this webinar. So Brian, thank you so much for being here. Credit thank you for that introduction, Terry. Uh, it is um, it is really wonderful to be here. And sorry about the uh, satellite connection. It's not always perfect. Um, you know, I don't know, uh, solar flares sometimes <laughs> or something. No problem. No problem. I'm glad that we've got this connection here. So that's that's good. We're gonna we're gonna use the audio and we're gonna go with that. So Brian, as I was just saying, I, I you know I, I I love to hear your take on all these things. Um, and I guess my first question to you is, where do you see voice making the biggest impact in times like these? Oh the wow! Pandemic? Oh, that's a great question. It's uh, really more of a universal question, and we can kind of jump around in some of the ideas. Primarily, I think we're going to see sure. a redesign of of public interaction surfaces. Uh, we're going to see things that interact with voice and maybe uh, over the uh, air hand gesture type things. 
And also your own device becoming an interface, whether it be actuated through voice or touching your own glass screen to open doors, uh, to choose locations and elevators, um, all number of situations like that, uh, you know, opening car doors. People are going to become galvanized with the thought that there could be a dangerous virus, maybe years, maybe decades afterwards. I spent a lot of time studying the 1918 pandemic and uh, read a tremendous amount of newspaper articles over the last almost 60 days now. And most of it is not on the internet, unfortunately. A lot of it's on microfiche and microfilm. So uh, very fortunate I have that and I have a microfilm, microfiche reader and I've been able to dive into the mindset of what happened post-pandemic. And there is always going to be a post-pandemic, right? So we start looking at what is going to change in society. And one of the things that changed in society post-1918 pandemic was how people interacted in public and touch surfaces. Um, and some of it stood for a long period of time and some of it was short-term. So we have that aspect. Do you want me to dive into more elements of this? Sure. Yeah. Please. I just I I'd love to hear your 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 thoughts on this. I know I know you've been looking at the uh, the 1918 19, 1919 pandemic, and you've been looking at some of the similarities. And and for those people that didn't see it, you should look in uh, Brian's Twitter feed because he he outlined all these different ways that uh, our society is going to change. So I'd love for you to yeah jump in, jump into that a little bit more and explain some of those ideas and how that relates to sure. the voice technology side um, of things. Again, voice is going to be sort of hovering over a lot of these things, and then we can sort of drill down. Uh, one of the things they discovered was copper surfaces had a, an immediate response to uh, devitalizing or deactivating because you can't really kill a virus necessarily. I mean, a virus isn't really alive. You can devitalize or deactivate it. And I'm sure you can uh, dive into that, Terry, a little bit more on the medical side. But um, it requires human DNA to actually actuate. And certain me uh, minerals uh, and certain metals uh, devitalize uh, viruses and bacteria uh, on something that is called contact kill. Contact kill has been widely known for literally hundreds of years. Uh, we can go all the way back to Sumerian times and the use of silver utensils and copper utensils. Uh, there are a lot of reasons for that. And a lot of folks, you know, I don't want to dive down the cargo cult concept of this, but a lot of folks saw more educated and perhaps more wealthier individuals using gold silver and copper implements, uh, you know, sp specifically for preparing food and things of that nature. And they said, well, that must be a sign of wealth. When in reality, a lot of these folks, not all of them, but a lot of them did understand that these implements, plates, cups, gobble goblets, uh, forks, knives, actually killed viruses and bacteria and made their food a little bit more presentable. Uh, a lot of the food wasn't necessarily presentable in ancient times, especially as we went uh, through the uh, Middle Ages. So copper has been known for a long time. Post-1918, 1920 pandemic, copper saw a uh, 
revitalization, sometimes used as brass. Brass has a tremendous amount of copper if made correctly, copper surfaces if cared for correctly, or even if not cared very correctly, still does quite a good job in devitalizing viruses. Um, why is that a big deal? Well, I think we're going to obviously rediscover some of this. I've, I've tried diligently to help people rediscover it, and some people have get angry because, you know, you know, this particular virus may last up to six days on cardboard, but, you know, copper might take four hours to kill it <laughs> or something like that. Ridiculous like that. And reality is it's much faster. There's much better research. Uh, four hours is, is on the far side. And again, I'm not trying to give anybody medical advice. I'm not trying to say consume everything in copper or anything of that nature. For example, copper is highly toxic if used with something acidic or highly astringent. Uh, copper uh, is great for water and water only to drink from, not beer or whiskey. So if I'm understanding you correctly, what you're, I mean, you're, you've looked at this pandemic that happened a hundred years ago and you've looked at some of the patterns and you've been studying how, uh, that can suggest yes. ways for us to deal with the the issues that we're having right now. Um, and so that's one good, because I've seen that now in the media, that, that, that's been picked up from somewhere and more and more people are talking about how, yeah, having having copper services seems to, as you talked about, devitalize the, the virus. What about in terms of, um, like, sure. getting back to the, the voice side of things, what do you, like, I know that, for example, um, there's a lot of talk now about making voice activated devices and you've seen the high, the, the headlines from China voice activated yeah. um, elevators. And you talked about cars. Um, are there other places where you see Absolutely. that having an impact? Uh, one, one final note on copper and I hope it helps anybody who has a medical background that's listening to me. Uh, all patient beds, all patient touch surfaces at hospitals in my view should have a copper alloy coating mm. period. End of story. Uh, if a patient's bed is not having copper rails at this point or copper alloy, it takes just a few microns, just a few microns to spray onto a surface. You don't have to worry about somebody stealing a copper bed because they're going to melt it down, you know, at some scrap shop. It just takes microns mm -hmm. and you are doing something incredible uh, by not, you know, having to worry as much that that surface is not, well, I could say this pretty Accurately, uh, a, 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 the, the right copper surface, if left alone for a, let's, let's call it five hours, if four hours is worrying people, is going to devitalize a majority of any pathogen on that surface. Now, is that a guarantee? No, no nothing's a guarantee. But I can say this, it's much better than nothing. It's much better than plastic, which is seven days. It's much better than a cruise ship, which they found the virus still vital and still active 17 days later in the cabins. So we need to think about that. So let's transfer some of those ideas into patient and hospital and doctor environments. There's no reason that we need to touch surfaces when interacting with the patient. Uh, a, a doctor could easily be speaking into a voice-first device to build that patient's file to help get the information directly into an insurance form and to cut down on the lag time. So we're not only 
decreasing the likelihood of contact transfer, which we need to think about, not just today, just you and I are going to get in contact with a couple of trillion viruses today, maybe more, and bacteria. Let's just be really clear about that. And a lot of that bacteria, let's hope, is in touch with us because we will not be able to consume our food if all of our bacteria is gone. Consume in a sense of digest. Uh, there are no teeth in our intestines. The digestion is done by by friendly bacteria. So that's that's my last uh, soapbox on that. But um, you go back to the idea, let's try to look at not ways to sterilize surfaces as much as why do we need to touch so many surfaces? Why does a doctor need to touch a keyboard? Why does a doctor need to touch any other type of instrument unnecessarily? Why does a patient need to do that? So we drill down in that particular environment. And and you and I have talked about this in prior uh, shows. And, and you know, Brian, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I, from my personal experience, exactly what you're saying right now, when I go in right now, and if I have to see a patient right now, and I and I'm you got me thinking, like how many different um, services I have to touch, right? I have to touch a door handle. I have to, well, I have to put on a gown, put on gloves. Uh, I'm wearing glasses. I have to adjust my glasses, my stethoscope, uh, the desk, the keyboard, the computer, the autoscope, the, the, the you know, the, the whatever, the, the little container that's holding my tongue depressors. And all of this is all potentially a source of the infection. No, no, Sorry, interrupted. No, go ahead. Please with the dive in because I'll, I'll go off. Uh, no, these are, if you were to do what you just said, if you were to do this on every patient visit, if you were to think about all of the interaction points, now you have two choices. You put everybody in a bubble. Now that's ridiculous. They didn't do that in 1918 and 1919. And by all accounts, that was a far worse pandemic, far worse. And nobody, nobody dressed in bubble suits. They weren't available. And, uh, and there were very few things to sterilize uh, contact points. So we start looking at you walking into a, a, a patient examination room and you say, well, what can I start doing to limit these interactions? And the very first thing is, can you sterilize a computer keyboard and mouse? No, you can't. It's impossible. You never can. You never will. Plastic will not sterilize to the level that will absolutely devitalize all forms of virus and bacteria, unless it's made of copper <laughs> uh, or, or sterling silver. This is a mm. fact. And, and, you know, a lot of people confuse antimicrobial and antibacterial, these terminologies. And, you know, they're not really even technical terminologies. And, you know, I'm not using technical terminologies in this, uh, uh, this uh, webcast for a lot of reasons, because I don't want to lose people on it. But the reality is, first, understand viruses are not truly alive. All right. So therefore, mm -hmm. antibacterials do absolutely nothing. So antibacterial surfaces do absolutely nothing. Does alcohol work on viruses? Yes. But not necessarily to the level that people realize. They don't necessarily eliminate that virus entirely forever. They can, quote unquote, stun the virus in a non-technical nomenclature, meaning that there is not enough of it to do damage. So you start looking at things from a different perspective. This is what science is going to start dealing with, because post-1918 and 1919, the best science had was, hey, I know when copper workers uh, were working in mines, they never got the pandemic. 
an empirical empirical mm. observation. I know that cinnamon workers who worked at the cinnamon factories never got the pandemic. Again, these are anecdotal empirical observations. And it was written about in the newspapers to a tremendous degree. It's not very much on the internet. It's more like a urban legend now. It's all like hazy. But when you go back to the actual, you know, microfiche and microfilm, you see doctors and scientists openly discussing, hmm, there's something here. There's something to be studied. That's, to my view, kind of lost knowledge. So they started to do stuff with these particular protocols. Today, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to start looking at every single way that a patient interacts with the medical system and the medical in system interacts with the patient. Now, one of the things we can do is to try to diagnose legally and under HEPA uh, and, and other laws and rule and medical association requirements to help diagnose individuals to the degree that we can use voice in and of itself symptom recovery and symptom translation within the guides of the AI protocols that we've created and what I call human telemetry. These are biosensors. We're going to start seeing a rise of biosensors that will interact with AI and voice first devices for a lot of reasons. Number one, just as a early warning system, for example, I, I, I work on a number of telemetry systems with my intelligence amplifier it can tell whether or not I've gotten a fever or my average core temperature has fluctuated or my heart rate variability or any number of about 45 different sort of telemetry points. Some of them are redundant, but conf confirmational. Even, even an in-ear device or a, uh, a near-field voice-first device like an EarPod uh, can read the eardrum. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot that we can get out of the eardrum. Number one, Human temperature, human temperature. Number two, pulse. Number three, heart rate. I mean, I can go down on this. It's also the endpoint of the lymphatic system. The eardrum is part, in a way, of the lymphatic system. There's other things we can determine because the lymphatic system is the reaction point to any pathogen with this, which has been discovered by your body, whether it be white blood cell or through another immune system response. So moving forward, we're going to have this symphony of of biosensors that will either be put on you when you walk into a hospital uh hopefully copper <laughs> contact points and 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 it will start diagnosing you before a medical attendant gets to see you so your telemetry is now in the system again this has to be done with extreme privacy extreme compliancy to not ever being on a publicly available network. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be very clear about any device I talk about should never be on the internet, period. There's no other discussion about it. I'm not talking about encryption. I'm not talking even about blockchain. I'm saying it never goes on a public network. That's how you're sure that it's never to be compromised. The more you're giving up in your privacy on these human telemetry devices, the more you have to give in privacy. And if, if we don't move lockstep with both of these at the exact same time, we're setting ourselves up for repercussions that 
really few people can understand will uh, result from. So we know that there are a number of signs of any virus within a human body. And one of those things are your temperature gradients start changing. So we have an early warning system. I have a temperature. The voice-first device is notified of this. Let's call it your AI device. A voice-first device, by the way, to me, isn't it, again, the ones that I want to build and the stuff that I'm building, is an intelligent assistant tuned to you, to your particular, um, your, your particular personality, your particular outlook, your particular goals, motivations. And it notices a number of things. Your sleep pattern has changed early warning system. How do I know that? I've gone through, I don't know now, a couple of thousand, the public database that's now available of all coronaviruses. Uh, I've downloaded all of the reports and I'm already, all of the studies, research studies. It just was put up three days ago. And I've already come to some amazing conclusions about all coronaviruses. I'm not a medical doctor. I do not have a single degree. I never went to a university, technically. So I'm just some guy. So take that with a level of uh, whatever. Um, but the reality is we've drawn some conclusions from these studies. There are early warning systems. And again, people with degrees and, and all the other things that are required to do this legally can come down and look at the information. And they can say, okay, some of the early warning systems are sleep pattern disturbances. Um Digestive pattern disturbances, you go into the bathroom too much or too little, uh, your temperature gradients have changed, heart rate variability has changed, your blink rate has changed. For example, we, we now know that one of the early warning signs for uh, COVID-19, as it is for some forms of uh, novel coronaviruses, from the studies that we've downloaded here and run the AI on, uh, has a, an, a usually some kind of some kind of change in taste and some kind of change in eye blink in uh, potentially even pink eye is one of the implications. So these are early warning systems. Right now, Terry, right now there's millions of people locked down and they're saying, do I have it? I need a test. Mm -hmm. I need to know. I need to know. I need to mm -hmm. know. Okay. You know, maybe. Mm -hmm. Maybe you need to know if, if, if you're somebody that's in a high risk area, you know, maybe you need to know more than somebody that isn't high risk to me is one thing. And one thing only immune system, period. Uh, I, I have to say that today. And again, I'm not somebody with a degree saying that I'm somebody who's done research. The thing, the one thing that makes you vulnerable to anything is a compromised immune system. All right. So mm -hmm. if you have a compromised immune system and you have some of these other patterns and you have systems that we will des design post 2020 pandemic and we meaning hopefully everybody in this uh, community of inventors and creators will be able to say with a, an Apple watch type of uh, device, a uh, AirPod type of device, we'll be able to say a lot more clearly what your daily biometric patterns are like through this telemetry. And you can choose and elect to, to give that to your doctor's medical database. And the doctor's medical database can function on that on a higher level, giving Terry Fisher a report every morning on all the patients that choose to participate. 
So now you have true telemedicine. Post-2020 pandemic, we're finally going to start embracing true telemedicine because financially, the entire world is going to break. It has broken to a certain level. Mm -hmm. So we, we have to rebuild what we think medicine should look like and not through special interests because most of the laws and rules that have kind of piled on top of each other for the last 150 odd years have been built like most rules and laws through special interest when large resets. And this is another thing we've learned from 1918, 1919, world war one, world war two. And by the way, 1918, 1919 uh, pandemic correlated to world war one. And there's a lot of correlations to that. You can get into that kind of, function into technology today but because there's a technology angle to that but what we're going to see is hopefully irrational discussion in the united states in canada around the world about what does medicine look like in this post 2020 pandemic world and i was going to ask you that specifically like do you think that it takes something and i think i know your answer now but it takes something like this like the covid19 pandemic to be the catalyst to really completely overhaul medicine. It's the only time, Terry, I'm a study of history. It's the only time in history anything changes. It is in a crisis. And that's good and bad. It's very, very important to be careful for what you wish for. Some people are wishing for everybody to have some kind of monitor so some central government can monitor you and, 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 and corral you up in the street, guys with big um, you know, uh, balloon suits on, uh, with a, with a big catcher, you know, pulling you into a truck, you know, be careful what you wish for. You may not like what your fellow citizens are doing, but they're doing it to themselves and they are doing it to others, but that's the reality of life. Right. I mean, I, I've chose to live where I chose to live. I've told many people for many years and I can get into this. And, and this is about uh, living remotely and this is about telecommuting. This is about uh, work remote. And I believe that's another element of this. And I'll get to, into that in a second before I put an end to this, um, you know, medical aspect. The hospital room <clears throat> will change. Contact points will change. They'll change from a functional level because we will, because of the amount of attention that we've put on one virus to such a level, I mean, we've, we've put to such a level uh, so much concentration that we're going to now rethink everything we do inside of a medical f facility. Um, now, the interesting part is during the Cold War, and I've done a lot of civil defense videos recently I've put up on my Twitter feed. A lot of them have been thrown away. I've got them out of dumpsters. And anybody who follows me knows that I've been a dumpster diver for microfiche books, uh, films, videotape. When companies go out of business, when libraries throw them out, my heart breaks. I only can save so much, but I have absolutely no problems climbing over the side of a dumpster and pulling this stuff out and, and doing it legally. So I, I've, I've gotten some old civil defense videos at, or films now trying to videoize them to, to digital. And you look at what we knew in 1950 about biological warfare and what we knew about, you know, these end grade masks, you know, what the average person was trained to do. The average person in the United States was trained in civics 
and um, a whole number of civil defense procedures, not just because of the Cold War. The, the idea of civics was a much bigger element. It was to understand what it is to live in a society, to understand how you interact with others within that society. And now, in a lot of ways, we've responded as a world in a very positive way. People have voluntarily locked themselves up and we voluntarily have taken whatever those repercussions are going to be to all of us uh, very seriously. A lot of us uh, civil defense was the basis of some of those ideas, but it went much deeper because people had a level of self-sufficiency that came about by being trained in civics and civil defense at a very young age. So there was less of a freak out. People, when they heard the civil defense sirens, they didn't run to the store and buy toilet paper. They didn't feel the need to have to get as much Cheetos as they can or as many bottles of water. Because what they realized is there were certain different aspects of life that would be impacted. And others, you know, you know obviously people built, you know, civil defense shelters uh, and basements. I, I just recently toured one. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, it's, you know, from 1953 and absolutely, uh, actually 55, in absolutely perfect condition. Everything is still on the shelves. It's it, it's like a time capsule. And you could see the mindset behind that. So the technology that existed in that era was a communication technology. What civil defense and what the Cold War, whether it was real or imaginary, what it created in the mindset of the average person was a communication technology and something that I've been talking about for 10 years now is a hyper-local mentality. And that is to understand, for example, in 1918 and 1919, there was no international um, uh, supply line or supply chain to be broken. It didn't exist. So food was not packaged 10,000 miles, 5,000 miles away. Food was packaged you know, two or three miles down inside of a bottle of milk or, or in, in a basket, you know, eggs or whatever. It was all down the street. Um, technology has allowed us to go back to that mentality, that mm -hmm. mindset, and that distribution pattern. We don't need to have an international supply line when it can be done locally. We are now learning that. Hmm. Every country has woken up and said, my gosh, what have we done? Why have we taken out so many of these manufacturing systems for extremely important medicine, pharmaceuticals, uh, pharmaceutical supply, medical supplies? Why do we offshore all of it? Hmm. Why have we done this? Because it has not much to do with nationalism as it much has to do with practicality. And the problem is we've gotten so caught up in the political discourse that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Cause anytime you talk about this, it becomes through the lens of politics. Mm -hmm. are, you a, are you a nationalist or an internationalist? Are you a globalist or non-global? This is ridiculous. Childless childlessness. I mean, it's just, it's, it's hard to comprehend why people need to look through that lens. Self-sufficiency is how 1918, 1919 got solved. 
Um, I, I put out a, a picture on Twitter of volunteers making face masks. It wasn't hard because basically everybody knew how to sew, not just women. Just about everybody knew how to sew because it was a function of their daily existence. Hmm. I'm not saying we need to turn back the time clock and go back into this epoch. I'm just saying be aware of the fact that you are not helpless. Part of the psychology that we're dealing with today is fear. Mm-hmm. Fear comes from a feeling of helplessness. That helplessness comes from the idea that I cannot take care of myself or the people around me that I love. Right. 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 And the way you deal with that is you can use technology to fortify that. Voice first technology is a great way to start. Brian, I have a, I have a question here that was asked in the chat and I, and I'd love to get your take on it. Um, from a Bob, Bob's a retired doc and he says, uh, I'll just read it to you here. I, I think when all the, uh, data is in, we'll find that the case fatality rate of COVID-19 will be similar to that of the seasonal flu. I believe the main problem is that both of these infectious diseases have hit the world at about the same time. What are your thoughts on this hypothesis? And can, can you monitor people's vital signs to predict these, uh, these situations earlier? Absolutely. Uh, Bob, that's a great question, Terry. Great question. Um, with, with the proper human telemetry, and I'm not saying we need to invent anything new. I'm not saying any of this is expensive. It's minor costs. You know, the temperature sem- sensors and, you know, all gas sensors, Terry, they, these are all very inexpensive. I mean, just, just reading the gas emissions from somebody, I'm not talking what some people think I'm talking about. Uh, you can actually wind up figuring out the health of that person. Now, these are not in and of themselves the only clear sign of somebody being uh, uh, under a particular virus, but we can tell if they're ill or not ill. Certainly, Terry, I'm sure when you see somebody, when you walk into a room, the very first thing I think you've been taught is how does a person present? Mm -hmm. What do they look like? Mm -hmm. And, And a lot of folks who are not in medicine don't really know this. They don't it's not necessarily in their wheelhouse of understanding. So there's a physical present presentment of that person. I have AI that can pretty much determine that a voice first AI, obviously with cameras that can determine that you present like you're sick. Hmm. Uh, not like you had a hard night with the, with the guys or gals that you really are sick. And there are things that we can look for. I'm not going to pre- pretend to, say what all of these symptoms are, but you as a doctor know what they are. Uh, the next thing is, you know, if we know through a biosensor that somebody is having temperature changes, night sweats, uh, not sleeping, that there's, there's some illness, there's something taking place. Then through a process of elimination, which is all this really is, all medicine is a process of elimination. And the best guess, you're practicing medicine, right? So at some point, you reach a determination. I mean, even, unfortunately, I don't want to scare anybody, but even the COVID-19 tests aren't necessarily 100% telling you that you have it or had it or will get it. <laughs> it's just, it's a, it, it's, it's a guess. And I'm not trying to scare people. I'm just saying there is no absolutes anywhere in the world. If you need to take a test, take a test. All right. But if you don't need to take a test, don't take one because it's wasting everybody's time and effort. Um, so if we can electronically monitor, monitor people again, hyper private, hyper local, shared with the doctor only with permission, you now have an early warning sign, which if there is 
hopefully never, but if there is another type of pandemic, you're now being able to discover the illness gradient and, and, and the matrix and the distribution of a particular illness far greater, uh, uh, far, far higher in accuracy and far greater in able to be, respond. Hmm. There is no reason. Yeah, there's no reason for somebody to go out, <clears throat> for example, uh, self-quarantine, for, ex- for example. There's no reason for somebody to go out as if the last 72 hours, they they may not notice. Like I'm sure, Terry, you go and ask somebody, have you had problems sleeping? Um, no, not really. Do you have night sweats? No, not really. Um, you know, you, you feel like you have a temperature? No, not really. I mean, you get all these, no, not really, because people may not be great observers of their own physical condition. Sometimes they're hyper observers and they imagine things. We know both spectrums. But with a system of telemetry on these uh, biometric points, you can know for a fact. You can say, well, Bob, it looks like you've had problems sleeping. It looks like you were up nine times last night. It looks like, you know, you really only got, you know, uh, six and a half minutes of REM sleep, you know, and it looks like you've been really fluctuating widely with your core temperature. I think you might have something, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and now now you that isn't that better, Terry, than having somebody come in and present like there's nothing wrong. Or, yeah, yeah. The, the data is the answer, right? The data is the answer. And, and what, what you're describing is just this being able to collect all this data um, and having it being voice first. I mean, that's. Yeah, because a, a patient could ask the voice for, voice first device, hey, how am I doing? You know, I, I mean, I can literally do that right now. And I'm working in a garage, right, with a piggy bank. I can pretty much ask my assistant, um, how's my health today? It can tell me what I ate, what I didn't eat, more or less, when I'm honest. Um, you know, it can uh, certainly tell me most of my biometrics uh, through the telemetry. Uh, it, it's not invasive. It's not on the Internet. Uh, hack away. You're never going to get to it because there's no connection. There's no Wi-Fi. But it can tell me about things that I may not have observed. See, empirical observation is the only tool humans have. It's the only real tool we have, you know, and, and that tool has allowed us to build everything you see around us. It's called science. It's called technology. We build it through empirical observation. Humans are great observers, but not on everything at all moments. If you build systems that are incredible empirical observers, they will pick up points that we cannot have the bandwidth to notice. Like, no, I didn't sleep really well last night. Now that you mention it. Yeah, you're right. I did toss and turn. You're right. I didn't get very much water. You're right. I am blinking a lot more. Right. Yeah. My eye is a little pink. Yeah. It's, it, it feels like a little like sandpaper. Now, if before I even got into a car to go to an emergency room, you had all that data, Mm. you might ask me to do something else. There might be a biosensor, for example, in my bathroom, you might say, Hey, Brian, hit the biosensor for me, you know, aim, aim really good. And, <laughs> and uh, hopefully there's no video on that. And, and then you get, now what have you done to the medical system? You've taken the power of a doctor and you've now multiplied the power of a doctor mm, to yep. focus on the one thing that they want to do is practice medicine and not practice filling out paperwork, not practice 
putting on a bubble suit, right? Now, if you need to put a bubble suit on, of course you're going to do that. But a lot of cases you don't really need to. That person that just activated that sensor in the bathroom can now tell you if he does come in or she does come in that they don't have COVID-19, that they have something else. And you don't have to be in a bubble suit. They can come in through a different door and they are not a potential vector for spread. See, these are things that we are going to change one way or the other because the mindset of the reset. And you asked me about history. When we have a crisis, we are broken out of our, our sort of trance, if you will, hypnotic trance of got to get to work, got to eat, got to go to sleep, got to wake up, got to get the kids, got to go to mm-hmm. work. Boom. We get caught in this trance. And I'm not putting anybody down. Everybody gets caught in it. it, it it's also something very comforting to have this. But and these routines don't let us notice that the technology around us is already there. All the technology you know, I show old videos and old films of technology that's sometimes four or five decades old, and people scream, how could we have done that 50 years ago and we still can't do it today? It's because we get caught in following the person in front of us. In the technology world, following the person in front of us are the five or six big companies that make decisions on all the technology you and I use. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, that's only one sliver of the possibility of what we can do today. Can I ask you a question about that? Because, you know, one of the things that has come out and and it's been in the, obviously in the media recently is Apple making an attempt to have a chat bot through Siri to look at people's personal situations and to essentially run through a little bit of a symptom checker. I'm I'm just curious. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that? I think it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant. And, but the problems are, whether it's legal in all all domains, some countries it will absolutely violate a number of laws in a sense, uh, in a general sense, in a non legal nomenclature of practicing medicine without a license. Hmm. It's it's a very difficult thing to balance, right? You don't want to give medical advice, right? Somebody could go over what I just said in this show and say Brian was spouting off medical device uh, advices uh, here and then talking about medical devices, you know, uh, what a charlatan we should, uh, you know, hang him from the poles. This is the world we live in, right? You know, you, we're not able to really talk freely because we're in fear that somebody might drink. Uh, I don't know. Um, fish tank cleaner, you know, I mean, it says not for human consumption, but we got to be afraid to say, don't drink it even though it says not human consumption. I mean, there's a point of ridiculousness that we need to be able to open these dialogues and communicate factually and functionally. Our devices, however, need to follow a very clear HIPAA, currently what HIPAA protocols are. And that's a thin line in the United States. And it's a thinner line in Canada. I think in Canada, it's not legal to use Siri or, um, Echo devices in this manner. Is that correct, Terry? Well, I try. I actually tried to play with that Siri uh, chatbot. It's it's not on. It's not available on the device here in Canada. Yeah, I think the interpretation so. of the law is such that it is not legal. Mm-hmm. Now, I, again, I'm not a legal scholar. I have no initials after my last name, so I'm I'm giving you my best guess at this. It'll turn out to be right, but you know, the, the, my best guess is 
there is fear in Apple, as there should be, because the laws are designed in such a way from such an era and such an epoch as to make sure that snake oil salesmen don't get away with it, you know, whatever it is. And so that translates out into Siri not helping somebody in distress that needs to put, put essentially go through what a website would go through, right? Because mm-hmm. that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about self-evaluation that you would normally get from any recognized legal website. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, if it's coming out of a voice-first device, it's a voice of authority, and therefore we have to be more fearful of it. I think that's hogwash. I think it's overreaction. I do understand why Apple is concerned. But I think we need more of this because people are in fear right now. They're locked down. Um, you know, if they take their dose of news, you know, I don't think you need more than 17 minutes of it before, you know, you start going out buying toilet paper, waiting in you know, five hour <laughs> lines. Uh, you know, and I'm not making fun of anybody. It is funny in a gallows sense. It's, it's, it's because when we're scared, we go to our very primal reactions mm-hmm. and our primal reactions. If we haven't been trained, if we haven't been in a civics class because they've been turned off since the 1980s, mostly in the 1970s, asking, you know, ask people, have, have you been in a civics class? Even if they're in their forties, fifties now, what is that? <clears throat> Sounds something like, some you know optional class no it wasn't optional it was required civil defense was required you had as a citizen to understand civil defense you had to understand why you boiled water why dust you know a lot of people say well a nuclear bomb goes off and we're it's all over that's not what they were telling people and 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 rightly so because the bomb itself if it didn't get you the only thing that gets you is the dust and i say only with quotes because <laughs> It's a really bad thing because it's not everything. But knowing that is power. Knowing what a calamity or a crisis will cause is power. I think the biggest problem right now is a lack of vital information. Voice-first devices could offer this vital information yes. if if it was allowed. If it yes. was allowed, you know, and, and it's important to understand the other aspects of how this is going to change society. I said it earlier, I'm, I've been an adv- advocate of telecommuting to work, especially for people in tech industries, uh, people that move things from point A to B, for example, electronically. They don't need to be at a central location. And we're learning really the stupidity of this. Most of it is born out of industrial revolution needing to centrally locate people near the means of production to move machinery, things of that level, to move uh, typewritten pages from office A to pile B, you know, all these things no longer make sense. Yet we can go to San Francisco, we can go to New York and we can say, we're stacking people up here. And now we're seeing some of the downsides of that. You have people stuck in cities who really shouldn't be in those cities Unless they want to go there for leisure. I'm not against cities. Cities are beautiful. But to stack people in the cities to make it so that the real estate values have skyrocketed to the point that most of the disposable income of these tech workers is going for a 200-square-foot apartment, that's when we realize that there needs to be a reset. 
hopefully this is part of that reset. How does voice first change that? Well, first off, let's, let's sort of just storyboard this. How does it look? Well, we already know, and we didn't need this particular pandemic to know this. We already know the people in knowledge activities and knowledge careers, which is a, a vast majority of workers these days, are much more productive if they're in their own environment. Whatever their own environment is, it generally is not with headphones on inside a big office, even if it's nicely decorated with uh, recycled wood and exposed brick on a big communal table where everybody has headphones on in hopes that they have this random conversation with their headphones on while they're walking through the hallways. The reality, Terry, is those creative inter inter interactions and interchanges are not taking place. And in reality, they never have. Statistically, it's less likely that you're going to have a chance creative interaction at work than you are hanging out with a group of people playing basketball on the weekend or mm -hmm. running or biking, walking in nature, taking a flight to um, a conference. Wow, Bill, I never talked to you about that. I sit next to you every day. We never talked. Mm, yeah, it's because right. you have your headphones on. So we're learning now that remote workers are actually productive. So now what do we do? We stop people commuting. We stop people from having to need to move to highly densely populated areas. We live in a huge world where basically everybody can have 50 miles, 70 miles, uh, it's according to whose data you want to use, of land around them. You don't need to be next to the means of production. Everybody doesn't need to be horizontally and vertically stacked. We make that choice because that's where the employment was. And now this calamity, this reset hmm. switch, has learned, has taught so many, especially executives, hold it, instead of, instead of maintaining this big building, and perhaps my ego, I can send some of this money that I was spending on this building so that people can move to wherever they want, buy a bigger house, and I'll help them, I'll help them furnish a great office space. And they can do everything with a great internet connection, with a voice-first device next to them, a conferencing system next to them, that they can press a button and do kind of what we're doing, instantly conference with anybody. And guess what you find out? What a lot of people are finding out these last two weeks, Zooming and the FaceTiming and Skyping has actually allowed you to talk to colleagues that you haven't talked to, even though you've seen them every day, yeah, sometimes crazy. for a decade. And this is human psychology. And some, some people say once a novelty wears off, this, this will not, you know, this won't happen again. This sort of new sort of interaction. I think that's entirely incorrect. I think if you make the right tools, people in the, in the domain where they want to be, and by the way, people being able to do jobs that they couldn't do before, moms, for example, and dads that want to stay home and actually watch their kids grow up, you know, going out in the middle of uh, North Dakota, you know, buying a nice house there and never leaving the house unless they want to. They want to fly to the San Francisco for a nice you know, uh, sourdough dinner or something with sourdough bread, whatever you fish. Sure. Go and do it. You know, this isn't my idea. 
folks like Arthur C. Clark, Clark talked about this in the 1960s. Hmm. Other futurists talked about it. They said, my gosh, what would the world look like? What would the carbon footprint look like? Take a look at the carbon footprint when people are, quote unquote, self-isolated. And these, all these words that we choose. And it's this thing about cabin fever and, and, and things of that nature. These are the other things that are going to reset. Is that maybe your relationship with your technology is going to change. Maybe the way you interact with people are going to change. Um, you know, are people going to be, quote unquote, distancing in the future? Perhaps some people are going to have a stigma in their mind. Like, let's never shake hands ever again. Hmm. Let's never hug ever again. These are some of the ridiculousness that is already being filtered through our society. And again, I, I can be attacked for this, but I can also look at history. Mm-hmm. I can look at a history of the bubonic plague. I can look at the history of uh, the 1919 pandemic. I can look at the 1902, 1901 pandemic. I mean, we can look back in time. All of this stuff fades away because humans are always going to be humans. Humans will wind up maybe, quote unquote, putting their guard down. Or maybe they'll go back to the reasons why they shuck hands to begin with. Why did humans, if you go anthropo- through the anthropology of this, you say, why did humans ever start doing that? It's an interesting story. And if you really understand the story, then you probably would pro- would not be as diligent in saying, nobody's ever going to shake hands again. We're going to elbow everybody forever. By the way, if I'm coughing on the inside of my elbow and I'm elbowing somebody, <laughs> I'm wondering... What's the transfer rate? This is where we get ridiculous. Uh, we walk on our feet, right? And, you know, people yeah. walk in their house. I mean, we can go through all of this. There's yeah. a level of reality. So technology changes because we have a crisis event. We know that there's going to be more telecommuting. Yeah. We know that that is going to reorganize society. We know that's going to reorganize families. We know that there's an upside and downside to that. Do I say everybody's going to be locked in their homes forever? No. I'm going to say this, that it is going to be very astute for tech companies to look at their corporate headquarters and say, you know, maybe 62% of the people that come in here used to come in here every day, Mm. don't ever need to return. And maybe we open up regional offices so they can coagulate on a regional basis. And maybe once a year or once a quarter, we get everybody back into headquarters and we all hang out and we, you know, go to the cafeteria together. But other than that, they go to, they go to work whenever they want to, as long as they're productive, dressed how they want to with the kid at their foot. If they want to on the floor playing the dog in the background, however, it works as long as the productivity is there and yeah. technology is going to inform that. Yeah. Um, if you have the properly designed voice first devices for uh, let's call it the corporate environment. And of course, some of these are going to be multimodal. They have cameras and, and, and video screens on them. You'll be able to say, hey, see if Terry is hanging out. Hmm. That's it. And the system will track you down and tap you in your ear or on, on your arm and say, hey, Brian wants a quick, uh, a quick chat. Yeah. Say, hey, Brian, what's up? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of a heart surgery. <laughs> no, <I don't> know. <laughs> no, that's not me. <laughs> no, that's not, oh, sorry, brain surgery. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I'm joking. Sir. No, but you great. know, you see what I'm that's saying? Yeah. Why is it voice first? Well, there's a lot of reasons because 
we are communication machines. Yes. Humans are communication machines. And our primary form of communication is where most of our brain power has been dedicated for our communication, our voice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Everything we type, everything we read is a silent voice in our head first or last. Mm -hmm. That's how we get it. That's how it comes in. That's how it comes out. Yeah. Uh, even people with photographic memory. So if I'm sitting at a desk and I want to interact with my colleagues, I shouldn't have to pick up a device. I should just say, Hey, get Terry, get, get Dave, get Brett. Let's, let's have a quick, let's have a quick conversation. Boom and done. Hey, what's up? Yep. Boom. You interact and then yep. you drop and it's not formal. It's informal. It's yep. instantaneous. It is never recorded. It can't be recorded. It's ephemeral. And it's just like what? It's just like the way humans have interacted for the last few million years. That's, great, that's how humans interacted. We yep. communicated through our voice and that's how voice first devices come full circle back to the quote unquote isolated person. That's one. And again, that isolation is just in your mind. I, I walked into one of my companies. It was an Inc 500 company back in the um, uh, early two thousands. I said, everybody go home. A couple hundred people go home, hmm. work wherever you want, whenever you want, just get your job done. Yeah. We're closing the building and people freaked out. They're like, what are you doing? I go, I'm liberating you. Do what you want. When you want, get your job done. You don't need anybody watching you. Why? Cause you are good enough to get it done. You don't need a manager. So I got rid of whatever small layer of managers I had. They were eliminated. It was just a simple organization. And it, it brought us to the Inc 500. We were, I, I don't know, 190 Inc 500. Uh, it exploded in productivity. So I'm not just talking in theory about yeah. this. I actually did it myself and a few of my companies. So we can build these tools. We can realign what we think the world can look like under these circumstances. And in some ways we won't have a choice. In some ways, some cities are going to have to, if you look at 1918, 1919, there were a lot of realignments within cities because of the public health crisis that took place. A lot of technologies were introduced. What technology were really taking off after the pandemic? This is very important to understand. Prior to 1918, 1919 pandemic, the average person was not really that interested in the telephone and they weren't really that interested in the radio. They both existed to some level. Post 1918, 1919, on into what I call the old Roaring Twenties, which will now become the new Roaring Twenties. <laughs> We're yeah. going to enter Roaring Twenties, and I'll, I'll, we I'll are. probably have to finish on that. But yeah. our our understanding, the anthropology and the history of technology post-pandemic is phenomenal. People gravitated back to the connection through the telephone. And what I mean by gravitating back is it was because it was a technology that connected people through communication and that communication was strong. It was meaningful. So most people got a telephone so that they could talk to their relatives down the block, a few hundred feet, <laughs> yeah. a few miles and later on across the country. And the radio took off during the twenties, not just because of the pandemic again, but the pandemic 
informed the adoption of this so that people could get informed, could hear about what was going on in the world. World War I also had a, a, a parallel to that. So in closing, I could say this. There will be a roaring 20s that mm -hmm. will come out of this. Mm -hmm. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind. Mm -hmm. We are only going to go up from this point of being down because mm -hmm. there isn't really that much further down <laughs> economically we can get mm -hmm. or mentally or emotionally. I mean, if we, we're going to have to deal with the repercussions for decades of it. But the reality is we will come out of it. And just like in the 1918, 1919 pandemics, there will be a release of productivity, be a release of creativity, and there'll be a release of socialization. There is no accident the Roaring Twenties got so crazy. Hmm. And we'll see some of that coming back. And hopefully that will affect uh, restaurants and other social gatherings because we do not need to eliminate them. They need to come back. We need our restaurants. We don't need everybody to have delivery drones dropping their food into their, hmm. into their bedrooms. And, and voice first technology is going to lead the way. I think this is the point in Love time it. where we're going to be talking a lot more. Love it. Brian, wow. Thank you so much. I'm just looking at some of the comments here along the side here while you were finishing up there. Rob says so thank many you. upsides to what has happened. Uh, and he, I think he's challenging all of us to find as many ways as, as we can to, to find the, the positive in this. Uh, Patrick says so much great information. Glad this is being recorded. Thank you for all you've done for voice tech. Um, so Brian, thank you so much for spending some of your time. We're getting requests here to produce what you've just shared with us as a podcast. So I hope that will be okay with you to do that. Um, I would love it. And, um, and, uh, fantastic. So Brian, when, whenever, like I said, like I said at the beginning, whenever you speak, I learned so much stuff from you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking some of your time to share some of your knowledge, your thoughts with all of us. I really, really appreciate it. And thank you it, to, sorry, go ahead, Brian. Yeah. Give you the it, last it's word. Really, Terry, I got to tell you, thank you. I, what you're doing here with this, with this conference is brilliant. Every one of the speakers, absolutely brilliant. I loved it. Uh, I got to say I recorded some of it myself because <laughs> I, I really, I really wanted to have, uh, have this because it's precious. I hope a lot of it gets to, to, to be put out there. I will. I'll and share so it I, I want to congratulate you for all you're doing. I want to congratulate you for giving so much of your time. I mean, you're a busy guy and you've put out so much work over the last week. It, it, it It's mind blowing. So I, I got to honor you and thank you so much gratitude to you and everybody on this podcast and everybody that joined us. Thank I really you. appreciate that. Thank you very much, Brian. And I'll just echo that. Thank you to everybody that joined us today. Uh, we went a little bit longer than I expected, but uh, I mean, like I said, you can see when Brian starts talking, I, I just, just want to keep listening. So um, thank you to everybody um, for, for, uh, for joining in. As Brian said, as I said earlier on, uh, like this is going to be the roaring twenties. Let's make our voices heard, have a loud roar. Let's push this industry forward. Voice is going to have such an impact on everything that we're doing. Um, in healthcare and, and everything else for that matter. So thank you, everybody. I appreciate you being here and uh, stay tuned um, until next time. Brian, Brian, where can people find and, and contact you? What's the best way? Um, I would be honored to speak to anybody through any method. Uh, Twitter, it's my first and last name. You can get the spelling uh, from uh, the links here. Yep. Uh, Quora, I do a lot of work on Quora, uh, not as much lately. Uh, my first and last name there. And uh, LinkedIn, sure, if you want to link up with me. Uh, I, I wanted to say this. Anybody that has a company that wants to work on a plan post-2020 
uh, pandemic plan, I want to help you. I will do everything I can to make myself affordable to you and to help build a plan out of this. I call it the 16 paths to the other side. There are 16 paths that I've identified using history and other methods of AI that we can get to the other side of this on any type of business. Wonderful. So I want to put that out there. That's a great, great, uh, great offer there, Brian. So thank you. Okay. With that said, everybody, thank you for sticking in here. I appreciate your time and uh, make sure you're uh, tuning into the, to the podcast. And we'll have a lot of this stuff back up. Stay, uh, stay up to date on the website, voiceforcehealth.com and the podcast. And I will do whatever I can to share out as much of this information as we can. All right. Have a wonderful day, everybody. Stay safe. I hope everybody's doing well. Be healthy. And um, remember, physical distancing, social connecting. Let's, let's keep that top of mind. Okay. Have a great day, everybody. Well, there you go. As you heard, Brian was the one to finish off our webinar uh, with his remarkable keynote fireside chat style talk. And I really, really enjoyed that. So big thanks to Brian again. Uh, to all of you listening, I will have... Uh, links to Brian on the show notes page. You can access that as usual on the voicefirsthealth.com website. And in this case, the links for this particular episode can be found at voicefirsthealth.com slash 62. Finally, if you are looking for some information to give you a little bit of basically a couple of tips on a daily basis to help you better manage what's going on with the coronavirus COVID-19, uh, my flash briefing called Health Tips, Health Tips by Voice First Health, may be something that you want to check check out. Uh, it often or typically covers general health tips, you know, really runs the gamut, exercise, nutrition, mental health, and so on. But now with what's going on, I am focusing more on tips that can help you to be more healthy at home, prevent the risk or prevent the uh, chances of transmitting the virus and so on. And you can just access that through the flash briefing, health tips, flash briefing by Voice First Health. Be well and remember one more time, physical distancing, social connecting. Talk to you again very soon. <laughs>